0: Even if you're running your own studio or you're a freelancer, approach your business like a design project. And I think you have better chances of finding it enjoyable.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Designer Sushi a podcast about the everyday life of a UX designer through the perspectives of two career switcher UX designers that have a shared working abroad experience in Japan. I'm your host, Lori, and I'm located in Toronto, Canada. And I'm your other host, Mika, and I'm located in Tokyo, Japan. So, for today's episode, we also have another guest here. Yes! (laughs) Because we just love bringing people in. And this is a really exciting topic. We're going to be talking about how to become an entrepreneur as a designer.
2: Yep. And the guest that we have today is someone who's been so helpful in in my own UX career. He's a designer and an entrepreneur based in Tokyo. He's the CEO and co-founder of Kamiko, a social venture dedicated to make eco-consumption mainstream. And my personal Yoda <laughs> in UX, <laughs> Rafael Ode. Hello, Rafael. Thank
1: you for being in our show. Yeah, it's hey so guys. nice to. It's so nice to have you here. Um, actually, this is like my first time speaking to Rafael too. So I'm also going to be learning about him <laughs> with you guys. Yeah. Nice but, to meet so, you, Lauren. Yeah so nice to meet you and welcome to designer sushi so we're just going to want to get to know you before we dive deep into the topic but as a i love icebreaker questions because they're really fun and i think the listeners like it too so the ultimate icebreaker question that i want to ask you is what is your favorite japanese food
0: Ooh, that's an interesting question yeah, well see I'm a vegetarian, so that that kind of shapes that answer quite quite fundamentally. And I used to have favorite foods before I became vegetarian. And I have my now new favorite food based on my dietary preferences. But I would say being vegetarian in Japan is limits your option a little bit. I think everybody accepted me to say right. sushi, given the name of your podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, vegetarian, get out of here! No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no
0: I, I'm. I used to. I used to like sushi quite a lot. Yeah, and then for plenty of reason uh, that changed. I would say now I, I really love a good soba.
1: Mm. Soba, that's a good yeah. choice. And yeah, it is true. It is very difficult being a vegetarian in Japan. So I feel like maybe you you need to guide the vegetarians <laughs> on how to <laughs> I guess properly eat. <laughs> in japan yeah. but hey if you're listening you're vegetarian and you want to live in japan eat soba and then also um talk to rafael for for recommendations <laughs> too
0: <laughs> exactly it's not as hard as it sounds though really you gotta find your things
1: no
2: of course not because i feel like it's such a struggle though well i guess if it if you're in tokyo it's easier but if i imagine if you're in like the provinces it's gonna be more difficult
0: well you do have to be a bit creative yeah there you go
2: people (laughs) (laughs) all right so now let's dive deep into our topic for today so before anything else uh, rafa could you introduce yourself to our listeners like how did you become a designer what made you become one and you know what have you been working on lately
0: okay um I'll try to keep it short. I have a tendency of speaking a lot, especially about myself. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I feel free to um, to do that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a designer. I have, I actually started my career in marketing and in advertising agencies, and I did this for about three four years. Uh, and back then, I was um, I was working in France, which is where where I'm from. So I was working in advertising agencies in in Paris. And for plenty of reasons that we can dive in uh, later on, but I, I switched to, um, to design, and I switched to specifically service design, actually, um, which is a design discipline <laughs> that you may be uh, aware of. And I did this at the same time as I moved to Japan, actually. So I both changed career and changed uh, country at the same time. And I joined a company called Design It, which is a global. Strategic design and innovation um, consultancy with offices a bit all over the world, and including one in Tokyo. actually, when I joined the office was was pretty new and they were looking to looking to hire and When I met the guy who was in charge, he told me, "Oh my God, I felt like this is good, we are exactly looking for people with your skill set like this is great, which was awesome because I didn't have a proper design education and he told me but I can never hire you because you know don't speak japanese and we're in japan (laughs) and so i was i was happy to meet him super sad that this was the answer and long story short i managed to make my way in (laughs) i forced my way in somehow (laughs) and so i joined design it in 2015 as a service designer Um, and i stayed there until um, until last year and since i left design it i've been uh, doing a bunch of other things (laughs) So I did absolutely not answer your question, but uh, I got a bit <laughs> of background here.
2: Cool. Uh, I'm just wondering though, like when you moved to Japan, you said that it was like at the same time you were also moving careers, right? So when you moved to Japan, were you already hired by Designit or you got hired once you arrived, after you arrived in Japan?
0: Yeah, I did what a lot of people, my suggestion did. So I, I actually came to Japan with working holiday visa so with basically oh. no job but just a temporary uh, visa that still allows you to do some level of of work so no i did not have any offer when i moved here i, I left my job back in france i packed my mm-hmm. bags i came to japan and i looked for jobs when i when i arrived here uh, and i did not have any experience uh, working in in design ux design or, or any of this my my background was really marketing but somehow I got lucky because a lot of the skill that I developed back in uh, my advertising career could transfer, and I made mm-hmm. it look like that actually.
2: <laughs> mm, so that helped, you pretty much just cha- tailored your your I guess like your resume to fit the the bill as a service designer. Yeah, somehow. Kind of? But
0: I, I mean, <laughs> I also self trained a lot in the past, like in the in the. So when I joined my, my, my first job actually in, in advertising, after like a few months, I realized, okay, I don't like this. <laughs> but I stayed for like three <laughs> three issues. So there was a lot of things mm-hmm. that, that bothered me. And so from the very beginning of my career in advertising, I started to explore adjacent industries, like things that were not so far, but not exactly the exact job that I was doing. And so I, I was super curious and trained a lot in complementary things. You know, I learned mm-hmm. online about, yeah. A bunch of things, and 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 eventually that's how I stumbled upon service design and UX, and I started to develop the skills on on my own, on the side basically.
2: Cool, kind of like the similar with with me then, because I also came from a different background, and then yeah. eased my way into design. Remember the days where um, designers used to design through Photoshop, because <laughs> there was yeah. no sketch app around at the time. There there was nothing, so it's it's cool to like see how people from different industries transition to UX back in the day I guess back in the yeah. day
0: <laughs> no I know it's like a long time ago but I mean I got lucky also, I mean my my education was not too far so for example in my in, in my college years I, I learned about like graphic softwares like Photoshop Illustrator I, I had a bit of training in that and then so in, in terms of how design skills I I did have a little bit of of background, and same in terms of soft skills. A lot of mm-hmm. the soft skills you develop in marketing strategy and advertising strategy help me actually to pick up other skills that, that make you a, a, a designer, I think, yeah. But yeah, I used to use, I, used, I did my first prototypes on Photoshop, how, how fun was that?
2: Super fun. <laughs> I've like never used Photoshop before.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: But yeah. That's how designers used to do it back in the day. So let me switch gears a little bit here. I mean, I also ask, like, what have you been working on lately? But I think this also relates to my my next question. Now you're doing your own thing, right, Rafael? So you you're doing your own social venture and all that. So what made you uh want to become an entrepreneur?
0: Sure, uh, I may also go into a lot of tangents as I answer that, so make sure I stay on track, please. <laughs> no, but basically, so I said, I was working for design for quite some time. I spent um, actually seven years in this company, and that's really where I I, I got to learn about, uh, about design, and I, I got to practice it properly, I'd say. And so I did this for seven years, and I think throughout those years and even before, I never thought of myself as uh, an entrepreneur or as independent, actually. I always thought I'd be working for a company and even for a mm. big company. Like I saw a lot of my friends either going freelance, doing their thing, going into tiny startups or um, working for like very boutique studios. And I always thought mm, that sounds cool and interesting, but it's just not for me. I'm more like a big consultancy, big company kind of guy, because that's what I've been doing from from day one. Like I joined a massive advertising agency working for really, really big company like Unilever and this kind of massive conglomerates. And when I when I came to Japan I joined Design, which is already pretty big company working for super large companies in Japan. So that's what I'm used to. But something interesting happened, I think it's it was kind of like the convergence of of a few things. The first one was that I started to be a little bit dissatisfied or maybe tired of the kind of work that I was doing. So after working mm. for 10 years in a consultancy for large companies, I started to be very curious about like, okay, what do those other guys who work for smaller companies, like for startups and an independent uh, company, what are they doing? What does it look like? Uh, I've never done this. And I think that curiosity started to, it's like a, a niche that's scratched a bit too much, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um mm. But complementary to this, something massive happened um a global pandemic <laughs> and so as yes. we some, i think i am just part of the big uh how do you call it uh great resignation that's the name that they call it is that oh
2: it? yeah yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> right so i'm just a product of my generation um no but when the pandemic kicked in i was forced to stay home like everybody and it was the first time in my life that i actually worked outside of the office because uh, since I joined uh, my first company, I've always been in a pretty big office, working with people physically, you know. And that was my definition of work. And that's what I associated with being, you know, work. And for the first time, I was at home and I was mm-hmm. working in a really different way. And I, was, I loved it. I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. I love working from home. And then when regulation like eased a little bit, I was still working outside of the office, but from coffee shops a bit and being more flexible. And I started to taste this, Slightly more and like uh, slightly more flexible and independent work style. Even though I was working for a company, design it, I started to feel like, hmm, it's it's nice not being in a very traditional work style. And um, and that's when I decided I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go all in. I was like, well, maybe I don't need an office and I don't need a big structure uh, to do work. And maybe I can try and do things on my own. And there was a third factor uh, that came in is for a few years, I've already been exploring the topic of social innovation and sustainability, which is something that, as an individual, I was, uh, as a citizen, I was very interested in. But professionally, I didn't really get the chance to to investigate that as a designer, you know, to work really on subjects relating with that. And so, but at the same time, I, I decided, well, what if I actually, bring it all together and I start to be independent and start to work on that mostly. All of this brought me to the conclusion that maybe I should leave my job and try to explore what it would be like to be an independent designer focusing on that.
2: Cool. Just uh, a side question to that, because you said that you began to be more curious about social innovation. So what makes it different from other design niches because you have for example fintech you have edtech and all these other um, uh, things that you can do uh, within the design industry so what makes it uh, different and what exactly is the thing that you know that really made you interested in that
0: yeah it's such a good question I'll start with the last part of your question like what made me interested in this because that's very short Mm -hmm. you know the, the world is not short on social problem <laughs> and i think these days you really get exposed to the urgency of different social and environmental uh, challenges and so so as a, as a citizen i've been just very concerned about what's happening with the world from very early on actually from from i think the, the first like very early days of my career I've, I've always thought what if business could be a force for good and so even though i was working for massive brands who may not have society's interest uh, in in mind so much. Uh, It's always been something that I've been trying to explore. It's actually one of the reasons why I shifted from advertising to design actually, where I thought instead of trying to sell people products that might not be so great for them, what if I was part of the process of making products and services that might be better for people? That's one of the reasons why I sort of transitioned from marketing to to design. And then that's the same reason why I then decided to transition from pure design consulting to actually being myself an entrepreneur or even an independent designer because you have more control over what you work on. So yeah, personally, I've always been interested in this. And so and how is that different from any other, I would say, topic that you might design for or design with?
2: Yeah, like design niches, yeah. yeah.
0: There's two sides to this probably. Uh, one side is it's not that different.
2: <laughs> really? Um,
0: yeah, that that's just one side, you know. Whereas like, well, design is design and whatever you apply it to, I think there are some fundamental principles that are still absolutely relevant uh, and good design actually is, is very similar regardless of whether you're designing it for, I don't know, for banking or for, or for social good. There's a, there's a way more complicated answer, which is what if social and innovation sustainability was actually not a niche, but was part of every topic. What if when you are designing for banking or for mobility, that was actually just naturally part of the discussion, which is where I'm hoping our industry will will, will end, like innovation and Mm -hmm. design will end, is that just like, you know, when you're designing for, yeah, again, mobility or banking, you always have the user in mind and you always have the business in mind. What if there was always that third component, which was society or the future or um, unserved, like. Yeah, and population and stuff like this. So that's where I'm hoping you would you would get to. So I'm hoping that at some point it is not a niche. It's just uh, just a natural dimension of everything that we do. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
0: but then there's, there's there's kind of like another aspect, of which is, yes, right now if you're tasked to design specifically to solve a sort of environmental challenge, there are there are some some things that you might keep in mind um, that are a bit specific. Just like every industry has its own sort of characteristics. And I would say that the most important for me, the, the biggest difference, is that it has to be probably way more collaborative than anything any other than when you're working on any other topic. I can elaborate a little bit on that, but that that would that be, be what, yeah.
1: that could be another episode.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I actually, I honestly feel, yeah, social innovation. It's something that I have personally never really thought of in terms of, uh, like, in UX and in product design, because we're all, we're always thinking of, especially in our industry, is to work for a business that sells something. So literally, it's like profit and and uh, just thinking more like the business perspective even though our job is for on the user so this social innovation is actually like quite a very unique idea but it in the end it should kind of somehow seep into our line of work because we are designing for people for humans at the same time and i know like in japan it must be i guess a bit of a an obstacle because japan is a bit too traditional and they're not really open to big like really big ideas so especially since um because you're based in japan and you have like a really cool uh like company called kamiko which is like promoting like sustainability and uh promoting and just in japan because japan has a really big problem with um with the with the whole um like consumption of trash so it would be nice to yeah explain more about like that like how did you come up with that and like how was that process like in like developing Comical, especially in a very traditional, close-minded uh, country like Japan?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, okay. I I don't think I fully agree with the fact that Japan is. Um, I don't know how you framed it is, like necessarily close minded as like you say. When it comes to when it comes to sustainability, it's true that if you look at other region, like if you look at North America or Europe, it might seem like there's more going on, and there's an awareness of environmental and social problems that is, yeah, at a different stage than it is in Japan. However, I think it, it's important to nuance that statement also because it's kind of easy to always, I don't know how to say, like to, to, to always uh, blame Japan for being that very conservative country that that is a bit slow to adopt certain trends and that doesn't necessarily like um new ideas and stuff but my experience has been quite different i feel like Mm. and maybe it's just my experience but that it is very easy for certain ideas to to take in japan and i think right now we're really seeing a big rise in awareness about social environmental problems and i think the adoption of certain ideas and certain solutions can be faster in japan the fact that maybe japan is a very it's quite an homogeneous market you don't have as much as many niche uh, behaviors as you might have in in other countries or in other markets, it makes it so that sometimes where trends take, they take really fast. And my personal experience has been that maybe it was a little bit slow to take off, but I think we're going to be seeing some massive changes in in the country, both in terms of um, regulation, in terms of what corporations are doing, but also in terms of individual consumer preferences. Again, I'm absolutely not answering your question, but and just to <laughs> set the context, like I think things take on, yeah, And then about chemical itself, yeah, I think uh, I was just uh, curious to see like how can we help people to actually do this to realize what are environmental problems that are happening and what they could be doing at an individual level to to contribute to fixing them in, in some way or to mitigate them? And so we came up with the idea of Chemical, which is basically teaching people a bunch of very small daily action that they can do that have a lesser impact on the environment. I wouldn't say a positive impact necessarily because that can get very debatable, but I would say like when you tend to use more reusable items and disposable ones, it tends to be better for the environment. When you tend to eat more plants then you eat uh, animal products it tends to be better for the environment so of course it's it's never like black or white but what we're trying to do is not not to be extreme either to tell people like you have to like this is what an environmental lifestyle looks like and that's what you should do but rather we're trying to encourage a uh, small progressive behavior change through all of this through an application
1: yeah like i i saw some of the um like i was playing around with the app even though um, I'm not located in Tokyo, but I was just playing around because also Mika was the one was the uh, UX <laughs> UX lead. So I was like, okay, let's yeah. take over work and see how it is. And actually, honestly, like the whole like point system and um, having like all the the store the stores um, partnerships, I actually thought it was a very nice uh, non aggressive way to change your habit. But it's just like very little like rewards. It's not like it didn't feel like you know, like Duolingo was like, um, harassing you to like, you do this, do that. Like, I felt like it was a very gentle way of just like keeping like awareness of like your habits. And just but also a nice reward, as in like a point to um, when you like shop at these places and promote like these businesses. So I felt like it was a very, yeah, it was like a cute way of like making small changes in your in your daily habits because it really is uh, hard to be motivated and changing like your habits these days. And so yeah, yeah. I actually thought, yeah, it was a really like really cool idea.
0: Yeah, I mean our assumption is that we're we're using concepts that people are very familiar with here in Japan. So the idea of point system or like being rewarded either with like actual currency or just like uh, custom points basically is very very common here. Like everybody's got a point card, like every shop. As point cards, every big company has a point system and all. And we thought, what if we just transfer that concept into towards um, changing behaviors for more environmentally sustainable ones? It's it's um, I mean, I say it's a hypothesis because we are still in, in the process of refining what Cameco is, how it works. Uh, I think the product that you might be interacting with right now is our latest version, but we are also working on making some pretty fundamental changes to it. Uh, we see some things that are working, some things that are not, you know, like digital products are just never finished and Chemical is for sure in its early days. (laughs) So yeah, we're still trying to figure out actually what is the best way to encourage people Mm. to change their behavior. And I think it's just the mindset that we have is we, we don't believe in like massive transformation, like massive transformation happen overnight, like for, for anything, you know, for like society, it's true. Like we can change society tomorrow but it's true of our personal behavior as well. If, if like you have certain eating habits, certain purchase habits, just because you wanna be a better citizen, it's not sufficient for you to completely radically change what you do overnight. And so the only thing that we, we've been believing in that it seems true is, is that it's kind of idea of progressive behavior change. And uh, it's true that incentive has been the first way that we approach it. And we are currently exploring other ways to do that. Yeah.
1: Mm, yeah Yeah. no that's that yeah, i i love it like just having those like small increment changes they still are yeah they still make an impact i do have like a question and i don't know if it if you're able to answer this but i guess it's just the top of my mind <laughs> but, but and maybe with listeners <laughs> well it's just that like you know okay because kamiko was uh developed and with people that are they basically it's just a it's a side project for some of, for your team I'm assuming and mm-hmm. these days in order for things to like launch or be successful there needs to have like some income and some money some money involved and I think like with some of the listeners if they're interested in pursuing like entrepreneurship or like even like launching like their own startup I'm like where do you get the money or like yeah. is money flowing in the future <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. I think we can maybe like take it like this. It's, so the model that we chose for Cameco is is a certain model. And actually that's something that we're currently questioning, to be very honest with you. I'm not talking about the application itself. I'm talking about the organization and the team structure and kind of like the organization structure that we have to, to build and to support that product. And your question being very simply like, how do you guys make money? How do you finance this? And that may be one of the biggest uh, difference with, I would say, a purely for-profit business and then a business that we can call maybe like a social business or a social-minded business. You have a lot of different models around this. You get models that are purely non-profits, right? And most of their financing comes from donations, I guess, and subventions, like uh, grants and things like this. Now on the opposite scale, you have purely for-profit, I would say, if you're launching a FinTech startup or like any kind of other startup where, uh, definitely, the classic route would be that you start with a tiny amount of capital, that's it, or, or your own skills, basically. You put together a team that you don't need to pay because they're, they're founders, and that team is trying to really quickly get to an MVP that, that's sufficient, that can demonstrate sufficient traction to maybe raise some, some capital, and then that helps you to hire people and, and grow that thing. And then in the middle, you have a lot of people who are trying to do what Canco is trying to do companies that are, that are actually companies that are for profit. So for profit, meaning that we, um, yeah, we're the traditional sense of the term. However, you're driven by a social or environmental mission, meaning that the money that you do, like making money is not the end in itself, uh, but it's just a means to an end. And the end is actually to solve a social or environmental problem. And this is a really interesting area. It's interesting, especially in is how can you bridge Business and um, and I would say social good, and I don't have any definitive answer I, I'm for sure. Like early in my journey in exploring that that topic, but you see a lot of startups that are playing at the intersection of that, and you have kind of like a little bit of both sides. Meaning that we need to make revenue, and as of now, Chemical does not make revenue. Very clearly, me put it that way. It has not been our priority, and it is not our priority. And I would say the trade-off to that is you need to find a way to still build an organization that without revenue can build and sustain a product and so this is where uh, we had to be very creative (laughs) and i think the way we've done it is to tap into two things into uh, people's passion to contribute to social and environmental projects and people's desire to learn and sharpen their skills and based on those two things we have managed to put together a team of volunteers who enjoy working on Cameco for those two reasons, because it's a way for them outside of their job to contribute to a project that they think is interesting and, and fits with their values, things that they cannot really do at work. And on the second hand also, it's a way for them to try and learn and test things that they could not necessarily do in the context of their, in the context of their work. So that's so why as of now, Cameco is a team of volunteers and, I, and it's only possible because of 12 amazing people are dedicating some of their personal time to make it happen now that being said it comes with really big trade-offs when you're working with a a team of part-time volunteers you don't have necessarily the speed the pace the uh, even necessarily the quality of work that you would have if you have a team of full-time dedicated paid staff and that model i mean you know there's no I think it's it's just a choice and we actually are exploring different ways of working on that spectrum for being a fully nonprofit all the way to being a fully uh, more traditional startup yeah
2: yeah maybe we can also but- touch upon uh, another venture that you're trying out Rafael. because of course you we've already uh, talked about comco and how you uh, put up pretty much like a a social venture or a product centered um company and Feel free to share how however you want. You've also you've also been trying to put up your own consulting firm, right? Like your own consulting company. So can you share what that's like and how is it different from, for example, putting up Kamico, and then what are the challenges in each uh, venture?
0: Yeah, interesting. So it's true that yeah, on one side we have Kamico, which is which is a digital product with a very strong social mission, On the other side I. I am building a, a design consulting business. Well, let me put it that way. With Chemical, I have no idea what I'm doing.
2: <laughs>
1: okay, it's good. You're being honest. Some people yes. just fake
2: it. it it's really refreshing, actually. Yeah.
0: No, but I mean, let, let's 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 be blunt about it. Like,
2: I, I, yeah,
0: I've never run a company before, you know, and I've never been in a product company before, right? My whole career has been in consulting marketing and then design and innovation consulting. And launching Cameco is me trying out something that I've no idea what it is. And, and it's great because it's been a wonderful like a learning tool for me. I've learned a ton about startups and products and business in general by building Cameco. Whereas uh, the other side of what I do, which is uh, design consulting, I, I've been doing this as, as a freelancer for about a year and a half in parallel of, of Chemico. And I would, I'm guessing like freelancing is like the, the step zero of, like the step one, let would say of, of building a business, right? But now we're trying to grow that. Like, I'm trying to grow that activity with some other people and to turn it more into a design studio or a design agency. And that on the other hand is a business that I've been in for, you know, for a decade. So I, I haven't run a studio before, but I've been in a position where I've been exposed a lot to how a design studio works, how you, how you run it, how you grow it. The, and and I would say the basic structure of a design studio is, is way more understandable for me to a product organization like Chemical, which is something I've never really been a part of. Yeah, so that, that's a massive difference. <laughs> um, basically, with running a studio is just replicating a business I've been in like for ten years. Chemical, uh, it's more a yeah, it's an adventure.
2: <laughs> Can you cite like a specific challenge that? And then how, how you overcame it. It can be with, with Comico. It can be with your consulting um, venture.
0: I mean, yeah, let's, I mean, the one that Laurie was mentioning is very interesting is when you are launching a startup, or this definition of a startup basically is, is a company whose business model is not proven. I think everything else is just a business and it's fine. A startup, it really is when you're launching a product, a service, and innovation, and you actually, it's a hypothesis. You are not sure if this will find product market fit. You are not sure if people will like it enough so that they will be able to pay to sustain it. I think that's somehow how you could how you could determine if a business is sort And and in that sense, when we launched Cameco, we had an idea of how that would potentially be financed and it happened, it turned uh-huh. out to be absolutely wrong. <laughs> it didn't work at yeah. all, <laughs> um, which is I think normal. I I have yet to find a startup whose business like whose first business model was the right one, you know, and it is mm-hmm. a constant uh, iteration process. Whereas when you're launching something like a design studio, the business model of a design studio is known, you know, and a design studio mm-hmm. has profitability baked in. I mean, you just you start by just selling your time. And if you, if you run it badly, you sell more time than you have. And that's not a thing I recommend to do. Or other than that, like it's it's a very straightforward business model. And so I think one of the challenges that we've had with Cameco is exactly this, it's, and we're still facing that challenge, is how is this going to be viable and sustainable? One one way is that what if it doesn't need to make money because it's a more shared mm-hmm. and collaborative and participative organization that runs with volunteers and that still, something we're trying to make work
1: no yeah you're handling so two different like say yeah businesses that are completely operating yeah completely different and for your design studio yeah really curious about this because uh let's be real here you're a foreigner (laughs) in japan and i know for um many foreigners in japan i'm sure it must be difficult to i guess build those relationships especially if you're working in with japanese with native japanese speakers uh it's it can be a bit difficult just because like as like foreigners sometimes we're viewed as like outsiders so i'm just wondering like how are you able to still build those relationships and still be part of part of like that japanese culture while like obtaining business and but also like yeah still being successful like here in japan like as a foreigner with your like uh, yeah with your own business
0: well i think that's all your assumption is that i'm being successful which <laughs> which has yet to be proven
1: right? <laughs> so. well come on <laughs> it's okay you're too so, modest here let's just
0: like <laughs> no no but for real like um you know it depends how you define success i mean Right now, I generate a you know, business so that I can sustain myself and a few other people working working with me, and I think I think it's very different than let's say running a 40 people studio. The kind of business you need to make, like the, you know how many people you need to know, how many companies you need to work with, is, is of a very different scale. So I would say that the problems I have today are not the problem that I will have <laughs> later on if that studio grows and is successful, and I'll answer your question very differently then <laughs> I think. But right now, let's just acknowledge one fact, most of my career has been in Japan by now. you know I've worked eight years here and four years in France, so it's double the time here. Most of my professional network is in Japan, and I have worked with very large Japanese companies who don't speak a word of English and I have worked with very small startups here who are run by foreigners living here and these are you know I, I, I do both and they are both different challenges and yeah different ways of of being handled but I would say that as a freelancer right now, I have the luxury of not needing, I mean, freelancer, I would say, owner of a very small design consultancy. Um, I have the luxury of not needing to generate a lot of business. And so I can just get by with a small network of internationally minded companies. That, that's, how, that's how I do it. Yeah. that makes sense?
2: Totally. Uh, let me switch gears a bit here. So so you mentioned about putting up a business and then you mentioned also about um, how you became a designer. So I'm wondering like, how is being a designer and as well as your past work experiences help you as a now um, founder entrepreneur? Maybe you've touched upon upon it a bit earlier, but maybe you can dive deeper into that.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, that's super interesting. I don't know if other designers think like me, so I'll just speak from personal experience, you know, but yeah, that that's, that was exactly me. It was like, I'm a designer, like, what do I know about starting businesses? And the truth is, I I don't know anything, <laughs> That that's for sure. That's a very, that's a very different thing. Like I meet a lot of startup founders who went through business school, you know, uh, or who have different, different background in like in finance, for example, or, or in, even in sales or who, who can talk about business way better than I can, and maybe better than I would ever be able to, I'm a designer that, that that's what I do. However, uh, I think there's a lot of things that we can take, like a lot of skills in the designer toolkit that makes us pretty good at entrepreneurship. And we come with certain things that I would say traditional business education does not necessarily give you, Um, but if you, if you can like look at it closely, the underpinning of a design process and the underpinnings of something like the lean startup model are not so different. So when we're talking about uh, not just business, but I would say innovation, for example, how to like
2: mm-hmm.
0: launch and grow a startup, a lot of fundamentals are, are very similar, right? So it's like we're working with hypotheses that we're trying to refine. We're prototyping constantly. We're iterating. We're doing research to inform our judgment. And that is, that is true of design. That is true of, of lean startup, which are basically about creating and scaling products. So in that sense, I think, designers that decide to be founders would find that a lot of the way that we work kind of is basically applies to uh, starting and growing growing products now there are a lot of things that we don't know how to do necessarily for example yeah all of the business operations and financing and hr and legal and all of this and my advice is just don't don't like don't like wing it just like hire professionals <laughs> work with right. people who know that and who can help you that that's what i've been doing like i have accountants i have lawyers uh, i have advisors who advise me about basic business things um, but the thing that we're pretty good at, at designer i think is having that mindset of trying prototyping researching having hypothesis and that mindset is very helpful when you're trying to when you're trying to run and scale a business i think. And that is true of a product business, but I think it's also true, of, uh, for example, design consulting business. If you approach the business, like the thing you're designing, so you're starting with a hypothesis and you're prototyping it and you're doing research and you're testing. And it's kind of what I'm doing right now. For example, I, I, I'm i not going to go ahead and, and try to all of a sudden, you know, hire a lot of designers, find a lot of clients and and grow a design mm-hmm. business overnight. What I'm doing is I'm I'm starting small as a freelancer, right? And I'm trying out different kinds of projects, different kinds of plans, different kinds of engagement. And I see what works, what doesn't work. And based on this, I'm trying to scale what works and to remove what doesn't. And I do a lot of research in the sense that I talk to a lot of designers around me to understand you know, their perception of, of, of design and what kind of company they'd like to work in, what company they worked in before, what, did, what they didn't like. I'm talking to a lot of my clients to try to understand, what did you like working with me? What do you not like? Uh, if you were to work with me again, like, what would you like us to work together on? Not in the sales process, but really in the research process. So I'm actually approaching scaling a design business like like a design project, you know? And then you're prototyping. So you're, you know, you can make a very small website and try it out and see what people think. And they give you feedback. And then it's like, oh, I don't understand. Like, how are you different from other competitors? Good insights. You know, let me, let me refine my business based on that. And so I think if designers like, don't think of themselves as business people because I don't think we are. Uh, we are designers and you approach business just like a designer. Um, then it becomes very familiar, you know? And I think it's the same thing. Like the first time you're tasked to design for an industry, you don't know. Like the first time I worked in banking, first time I worked in mobility, I didn't know anything about those industries. But I applied what I knew, which is design process and my, my design skill set. And here's kind of the same thing. I actually don't really know what it is to run a business, but I approach it like a designer because that's, that's very familiar. Somehow that is uh, working
2: for me so far. is mm, a very yeah. interesting take, no? mm-hmm.
1: I never thought of like, as a designer, like having... It- the same skills as being an entrepreneur but everything that you said just like totally made sense i'm like oh yeah i guess yeah we are testing it we're testing out like our like wireframes and for example we do prototype we do user testing so it's very similar in a uh in an entrepreneur set but i guess it is more scary as an entrepreneur like that it's just more at at stake so props to you Raphael, for uh getting over being one of like the yeah trendsetters and getting over that hump and testing out yeah like a business
0: yeah i mean i don't know i don't know if it's scary what scares you lori when you say it's scary <laughs>
1: Well, okay, well, you know what, when you said how you worked in big companies, and then now you're Yeah, now you have like, um, like your own like freelancing and consulting business, as well as like chemi- chemical it's a side project. Like for me, because I work in a big company, too. And for me to uh, like make that transition, it's a bit like I'm losing my I guess, my structured schedule, because when you work full time, in a company you have like, st- everything is so structured. Everything is like plan for you but then how i see it like with freelancing it's like oh like you don't know what your day is going to look like tomorrow so i guess that is a bit of a that's a bit scary for me i've been working big companies for years and yeah no of
0: course of course um i guess that that that's true (laughs) Like you're totally right but it doesn't have to be like i know so i know so many independents like designers or creatives who are you know who are freelancing or who have very small studios and You, you choose how you want it to be. Like when you literally, when you're your own boss, you are your own boss. And then you can be a good boss or a bad boss, or you can be no boss at all. That's up to you, you know? And I know people who are like, I don't have a boss, therefore it's chaotic. And I like that. And that's fine. That works with them. You know, like they wake up in the morning. They feel like today I don't want to work and they don't work. (laughs) And then for one month they don't work. And then they run out of money and they feel like, oh damn, I need a project. And then they look for a project and they do it. That would scare the hell out of me. Like, I, I don't like this uncertainty and, and too much flexibility. is not something that works for me. So the way I approached it is I nobody's giving me a structure, but I'm going to make a structure because I like it and I need it. So when I left my job and I and I went all in, like, independent, and I started chemical and then I freelanced, I w- it was just like this. Like, nobody would tell me what time I should work. Nobody would tell me what my day would look like. But I, I decided to do this. So I woke up every day at the same time and I started working at nine and I ended work at, you know, seven, eight, nine, depending on the day. Like I, I try to force the schedule upon me and even to structure my week with activities that I knew I would need. For example, when you're selling out, you don't have clients necessarily. So I would force myself to at least, you know, X amount of hours a week to do certain sales activity. And then X amount of hours week to do more like networking and then another amount of hours a week i would try to do to still educate myself and still carve out some time to learn stuff that i don't know and so even if you don't necessarily have an ongoing business, you can still have a structure and then that system slowly is gonna is gonna work out by itself and then one day you get a project and and everything works out (laughs) yeah so it you know it doesn't it's not because nobody's giving you structure that you have to be unstructured. You know what I mean?
2: Totally. Now, I think this is a good segue for my next question. In a conversation that I've had with Raphael, he mentioned about working in versus working on the business. And I think it's a good um, nugget also to share with our listeners. So Rafael, would you mind explaining what that means, like working in versus working on the business?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, that's a concept that is very known, I think, in entrepreneurship. Um, actually, I think it's from a book called The E-Myth Revisited, uh, whose author names I don't remember, and a book I actually didn't read. <laughs> it's on my reading list. It's been on my reading list for a while. But it's a concept that comes up over and over again when you're trying to study about entrepreneurship and about small business, basically. So that's why I've been exposed to it. Well, the idea, and let's take, a I think, a business that everybody may be familiar with, which is a, the design uh, consulting business, maybe, like design business, because it's a good example. Working in the business means that you're working in dev- delivering value to your clients, so that would be actually doing design projects. So you've been spending your time doing you know, research, doing screens, doing client meetings. Like That would be basically working in the business. Working on the business is... Trying to take a step back from the day-to-day delivery work, but actually working on getting projects, doing marketing, um, hiring, doing accounting. So working on all the functions that make that business viable and growing in a way that's sustainable. And I think that the trap is that most people tend to spend most of their time when they are starting a new business working in the business, right? But if you do this and you don't spend any time working on your business basically, you might end up in a place where, well, you know, if you haven't done any sales activity in a while, you you know your pipeline might be dry and you might end up with a moment where you you have no projects anymore. Or you might not look at your at your you know accounting documents too closely, and at some point you just run out of money. And so I think the, the trap for designer actually the trap for me is to make sure that I love working in the business. I love doing design projects. But I need to make sure that I covered enough time to work on it. And that leaves also more time for other people to work in the business. So for me to find other designers to deliver projects.
2: So does that mean like having a dedicated day to a lot on that, like on the, like the operation side of your business?
0: Yeah, I guess uh, everybody can approach it differently. Uh, the way I do it, I, I like routines and I like systems. So, yeah, that's what I do basically. I block times in my calendar where I'm not available to work for clients. So, I, I have a half day blocked for yeah, doing corporate stuff. I have another few hours a week that are for networking and sales. Yeah.
2: Nice. Okay. So, what other things um, have you seen that I, I... I'm assuming you probably know other designers who are also trying to start their own businesses. So, what is like the trending struggle that you've observed um, amongst designers who also want to become entrepreneurs?
0: I think, again, the struggles might be different if you are trying to start a design business or more of a product business. That might be very, very different, I think. I would say that the the number one thing for people who are starting design businesses, is exactly that is finding that balance between how much should I do the work versus work on the company and let other people do the design work. I think finding that right balance and when you're starting out, you need to do both and to a certain extent, you need to be like all oh, hands on deck but and all over the place. But when if you want to grow your activity, there's a time where I think you have to get take a step back from doing the thing yourself. And you have to basically create space for other people to join in and actually deliver the work and i think that's the hardest thing for designers to do because we're so used to just doing the work you know but you can find the same struggle when you are actually i would say laddering up inside of a design organization or inside of a product organization where from being a hands-on UX UI designer you become a UX you know leader and you need to start designing processes and designing how people will design rather than just actually doing the work yourself, I think it's a similar to similar struggle
2: interesting yeah because personally that's that's a struggle for me actually <laughs> like I like doing being hands-on uh, with design, so for me to give up some bit of that control can be daunting uh, for me and so um with that being said, like do you have any um advice? Uh, for designers who are trying to start their own businesses like for example like what can they expect and um, how can they maximize their skills in their pursuits in their entrepreneurial pursuits maybe this is a bit too much so you, so you can feel free to answer the first question <laughs> i've just thrown at you,
0: you mean, any advice i have for people who want for designers who want to start businesses a few, and again, design, uh, starting a design business and a product business, I think might be a bit different. The struggles you might have are all different. We didn't talk about the second, which is designers struggling in product, uh, like starting a startup, basically. But it's okay. Let's not expand too much on this. My my first advice, I mean, and again, it's just from personal experience, is you. It's two things. First, is you need to study a little bit about business. <laughs> I think, and the fundamentals mm-hmm. aren't as scary as they seem for people with all kind of background, but there are certain things that you just need to know and i think you can go on new and find a couple of classes you can join a seminar you can read about it you can listen to podcasts i think putting in some hours in doing this is actually quite important because it will make sure that you avoid certain mistakes and that you understand certain fundamentals basically that's what i did and i'm really glad i i, I did that because otherwise i be struggling a little bit for example there, there's a really great book um it's called run studio run from authors run studio. <laughs> like i forgot the name of the author once again pretty good at remembering book names pretty bad at remembering the author name. But but, we'll have um, it in it the show basic... notes <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's a great book about like how to run a design a design studio basically and you know if you're thinking even to freelance i think it's not written for that it's written for small studios but i think even if you're looking to freelance, it will give you like a few, a few basics. So I think Mm -hmm. education, like educating yourself is is very important. And the second thing is leverage what you know how to do. So back to my point is like if you're a designer, there's a lot of things you know how to do, just apply that to how you run your business instead of trying to become a businessman or businesswoman, you know, which you're not necessarily. You're, you're a designer running a business. It's, it's different from somebody who's with a finance background running a business. You, you'll end up running the thing very differently. And I think if we maximize our strengths instead of trying to overcome our shortcomings, you know, you might mm. have a greater shot at succeeding. And so for me, it's kind of what I'm trying to do is I approach running businesses like a designer. And the thing that I don't know how to do, I try to outsource them to find help for it.
1: No, oh, yeah, that's cool. such a great, yeah, such a great tip. Because uh, I know, like, there's, I guess, like, um, sometimes, yeah, like, what you said before, designers, like, we're just so, like, working in silo, and, like, so consumed in, like, our work. But then once you have your business, um, it's, like, to bring other people in as well, too, like, rely on, like, the help and the, and their um, expertise, like, you can't do, like, you can't do everything. So I think that, no, that's such a great tip. I have seen and have worked at some startups where founders try to do everything because they want the that control right. of it, and it, it just doesn't it just doesn't work out. So, um, like my question is like for those that are looking, wanting to, I guess, level up and wanting to be like entrepreneur and how like have their own business or have or be freelancing and have their or have their own studio. Like, how are you? How do you like develop those um, management skills? So, uh, if they don't have like previous management experience, and how do you like lose that control and let people like let and like lean on these type of people that are like Mm -hmm. experts in like business or like in other areas? Yeah,
0: I guess it's 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 tricky one, right? I say the hardest thing in my career was that transition from being a hands-on designer to uh, being to some extent like a design leader. That was that the hardest thing ever for me. And I think I see a lot of people struggle with that. And I'd say that if you are trying to overcome this at the same time as you are basically trying to launch a business, that might be very tricky. I think you're, yeah, I would suggest to 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 tackle those two, you like to climb those two mountains maybe separately rather than, than all at the same time. But it might happen for a lot of people actually to, have to do this um, altogether. For example, if you start freelancing, you're really, really hands-on, and people basically hire you to, to do the job and they, they pay for your time. And then if you're trying to scale from there uh, and you've never been in a management or leadership position before, I think it's going to be really difficult to let go a little bit of, of of that pressure of like wanting to control and wanting to do the thing yourself. I don't really know if I have a good tip for that because that's something that I've struggled with so much maybe if there's one way to overcome it is to put you in a position where you don't have the choice so <laughs> for example <laughs> you have more work than you can handle and you're like i have like literally i i cannot have any extra hour to do that thing I, I need somebody to do it for me that's it that's just how it's gonna work but i think sorry um just to be clear delegating design work and delegating other tasks is very different first of all I find no, (laughs) I have no pressure delegating accounting to my accountant, (laughs) just to be really clear. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, And to a certain extent, if you're not comfortable with certain tasks like this, like just, I think it's it's way better, but this is easier, right? What's really hard is delegating design work to other designers. And I think that has more to do with uh, growing into leadership position rather than entrepreneurship itself yeah something that is interesting though and we didn't really talk about it but you mentioned it Laurie. i think it's a very good point is designers running startups uh and, mm-hmm. and wanting to do wanting to do everything and even the thing that you're not really uh good at as a designer yeah i think it's true and I, for chemical i have a co-founder and she's handling a huge part of <laughs> of the work that i don't i don't do she's handling everything that has to do with uh, with users and customer and acquisition, marketing, branding, and just doing that a hundred times better than I could ever do it. Uh, and I think having that humility of saying, I don't know anything about that area. I don't know anything about finance. I don't know anything about operations and trying to find support for this. Um, I think it's the way to go. Yeah.
2: yeah. Maybe final question to wrap up this uh, episode. Can you lay out like an expectation versus reality? For for the designers who are wanting to um, dip their toes or maybe go full in on becoming uh, entrepreneurs, uh, any myths that you want to debunk? So like expectation, <laughs> reality, and you know maybe we could end the episode with that.
0: <laughs> That's <such> a great <laughs> question. Again, I think everybody's experience might be very different. I'll just give you mine, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Expectation. I'm gonna struggle to find work, and I don't know if I'll be able to make any money. And reality, I have way too much work, (laughs) and (laughs) the problem is, uh, the problem is selecting the work that you do and saying no to really great projects because you just don't have the time to handle it. Yeah, I'll just pause and debunk that expectation. But like, I think there is huge, there, there is need for design, like in the market. Like there's so many people who are looking for design and designers, and if you go, if you go solo, I think you, I don't think it's that hard to find work, I think, which is uh, hardest to find Yeah, work that you like to do. <laughs> and not just what they mm-hmm. have to do. I'm in a very fortunate position uh, where I, I love all my projects and I love all my clients and it's wonderful to work with them. The problem that I have is. How can I do more? <laughs> because I don't have the time to do more. <laughs> yeah. So that—that's that, my expectation. And and some friends of mine who have done the same thing as me, who I, have left their company and started their own practice, have had the same the same problem. Because basically, you get very busy very quickly because you have less time mm-hmm. than you think. Yeah. So first, miss the bond. Yeah.
2: Cool. <laughs> I think I'm gonna go full in
1: now.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: No, we've heard well, people say that. He, well, so. Yeah. Like um they sometimes they uh they say yes a lot to all these projects because it, it's exciting you're like oh my gosh these projects yeah. are exciting but then you don't lower your boundaries You're like oh I'm like so overwhelmed now I'm like working overtime yeah. and then it's not fun anymore so I guess like yeah. yeah having that healthy balance of like knowing when to say no sometimes yeah it's hard for me to say no because I am presented with really cool like projects and stuff and I'm like oh my gosh it sounds amazing and then I forget my workload because everything's just like I just completely forget about it. And I'm just so sold on this like idea and project. And then I'm like weeks later, I'm like, all oh, right, I still have like all this pile of work to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess then, yeah, no, second miss is debunked is like, you should go freelance, like your work, how you want, where you want, and you're so in control. And you can, you know, I, my image was like, oh, if you know there's a good way on Tuesday, I can just take the day off and go surf and, that's not true. Like on Tuesday, I have client meetings like <laughs> that are fixed, you know, <laughs> and I end up working on weekday and taking the weekend off. And you know, maybe it works differently for other people, but for me, like the expectation of having that very like um, flexible, you know, um, work- workload and stuff, where like you're totally in control. Actually, me, I'm way less in control of my calendar than I than I expected being being independent. That's also because I set up things this way. Uh, it gives me mm-hmm. a form of stability both financially but also in terms of like forecast and everything but yeah i think that's another mistake that you can debunk is like uh, when you start to get busy then you know it looks like a just it looks like a job <laughs> <for> definitely <me. laughs>
2: yeah definitely because because i've i've always i've always seen these type of I would say propaganda about digital nomads,
1: yeah, you know,
2: like they they're always ha they always have these pictures of them like in their hammocks, like with their laptops, oh my or, God, like, on yeah. the beach like and I, and all in my head, like I'm just thinking, like how do you even work while at the beach?
1: i'm literally I, like is that true by it, the <laughs> way is this the myth? by the way is this like an expectation like do you are you like the digital nomad life where you like travel and then yeah there you take like a selfie <laughs> uh on the beach with like your laptop because like like how you really can you need to know about well this? <laughs> are you going to like shatter our digital nomad <laughs> dreams <laughs> i mean no no
0: i think it's, it's 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 true like a lot of people are living there that lifestyle dates, again, my experience doesn't have to be like, it's not a great experience. And I, I have a mixed answer to this where I'm like, it's partly true, but I actually don't really like it. So I surf and I like to take surf trips and sometimes in, you know, to be able to take a three or four day surf trip, I cannot completely take everything off and I'll have to squeeze in a couple of meetings to, you know, take a few hours mm. to do some work. So I've ended up, you know, working, from a cafe next to the beach or working from the car next to the beach. And it <laughs> happened to me quite a few times. Now, I enjoy it? I don't know. But other things you can, I think, do when you're freelance or when you're remote. I think a lot of remote workers can do that is decide what if I take two three weeks and I, you know, go, you know, go uh, take a vacation somewhere in a place that I love. I've done that too. And yeah, it's very enjoyable. To be honest, now yes, you can you can make it look better than it really is
2: on Instagram. I think because <laughs> the, the the fact
0: is you you might be working from the beach, you're still working, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. At the end of the and day, it still works. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I work better in front of my computer at home. You know, like in a proper setup. That's just me. Um, but yeah, if yeah. I if I want to, I can also work from other places and and it's it's fun sometimes. Yeah.
2: Cool. So there you have it, designers. (laughs) So if you're interested in becoming an entrepreneur, reach out to Raphael. We'll link his socials.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, (laughs) Raphael. Honestly, it was like a really interesting topic. It's just something that the design community never really talks about, like being an entrepreneur, especially as a designer and with a design background too. So, like, hearing, like, all of your, like, struggles and, like, your, um, also, like, some of the amazing things that you do, it's just been very, yeah, it's been very enlightening. And, yeah, I learned a lot. Yes. Thank you so much.
0: It's it's so weird for you to call me an entrepreneur. Like, maybe that's my
2: final. (laughs) Yeah,
0: maybe it's my final, I don't know, like, statement. It's like, I'm a designer, you know. I happen to be running a few businesses, but, like, I wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like, I still struggle with the entrepreneur title. I'm like, yeah, I'm a designer. I happen to have my own studio and and, and to, run a, to run a small startup. But like, yeah, I don't know. I'm I a designer think that's a common, Maybe it's different. I think,
2: yeah, I think that's a common mindset among creative professionals, right? Even with, um, let's say, graphic designers who are trying to do their own thing. I think they also struggle with, with that title, like calling themselves business people, right? So mm-hmm. maybe that's a common trend. Uh, yeah. amongst creatives and it's not
0: a bad thing you know it's not a bad thing to know you know to know where you stand and i think it you can you can probably do both and I, and that's my piece of advice is like don't necessarily just run a business try to design it even if you're running your own studio or you're a freelancer approach your business like a design project and i think you have better chances of finding it enjoyable than if you're approaching it like you think a business person is supposed to do that. If you have to do sales, approach sales like a designer. Approach your sales process like, how do I design that? If you have to recruit people, approach the recruitment process like a design project. So do some research about it or prototype it, you know. Try to do the thing that you're familiar with. And yeah, maybe that's a better way for designers to run businesses. That's how it works yeah. for me, at
1: least. Love it. No, <laughs> so, love great. this one, yeah. Such a great yeah. idea. Thank you so much, Raphael, for that. And that's a great way. That's a great
2: remark to end the episode. With. Right? Thank you so much for for being in our podcast. And I hope Thanks that we, we hear from you again and we feature you again in another episode in the future. Mm-hmm.
1: So, the, so too. yeah, we'll definitely uh, link your, um, your social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, on our show notes. And then just to end it off as well, too, don't forget to give us a rating on Spotify and leave a review on Apple Podcasts for Designer Sushi. Thanks, everyone, for the support. And we'll catch you again for the next episode. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.